All right. Good morning. Welcome to Spring Meadows Presbyterian Church. Uh, if you haven't already, there are handouts in the back. Uh, today we're studying Shorter Catechism, number eight and nine. At least we'll get into some of the significant themes. Uh, certainly not going to exhaust this. Um, let's open with prayer. Father, we give thanks that you're a creating, uh, sustaining, and redeeming God. We come to you today because you redeemed us in Jesus Christ. You've opened our eyes that we might perceive reality, that heaven has been accomplished for us, that Christ is our Savior, that you are our Father, and that we're brothers and sisters in that relationship. We pray, Father, you would teach us about how you created the world and, Father, uh, of your mighty power. We give thanks for yet another new year. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so let's uh, responsively read uh, the catechism. I'll ask the questions, and you guys can respond with the answers. Uh, shorter catechism number eight at the top of your page. How does God execute his decrees? God executes his decrees in the works of creation and providence. And then question nine. What is the work of creation? The work of creation is God's making all things of nothing by the word of his power in the space of six days and all very good. Okay. Um, well, as we look at uh, the Shorter Catechism 8, we'll deal with that really quickly. Um, this dips back into where we were looking about before with God having decrees, right? And we looked at, we looked at number 7 that... His, it's probably more accurate to speak of his decree as singular because God has one plan. But in terms of the way we perceive things, of course, we, we see there's decrees. There's multiple from our perspective. Um, but we saw with seven that uh, God uh, has the power to <coughs> do stuff, right? With eight, we see that uh, the fact that God does execute his decrees. He executes. The word execute shows that God is all-powerful and does exactly what he pleases. All right? As the children's catechism would say, God does all his holy will. That is, God is sovereign. Nothing happens apart from his will. We remember back to number seven, that God has foreordained or pre-planned everything. Yet notice that the execution of God's decrees are not all alike. Some executions of his decree are by creation, and other executions of his decree is by providence. So today we're going to look at uh, creation. So that's the commentary on number eight. We're done. We'll look into creation, and of course the essential text is Genesis 1 and 2. Um, but before we jump into the Genesis account, I want to try to uh, situate you in the, in the time and place in which the Genesis account was likely first read, Okay. Um, it's important to understand Genesis in the time and in which the marketplace of ideas in which it was written. Uh, you guys know, as you know, most of us, almost all of us, are 20th century beings. Some of us are 21st century beings. I mean, but we know that the, uh, the sort of after the, you know, uh, the 19th century, there's sort of a revolution in ideas, right? We have that unholy trinity of sorts of Darwin, 1859, Origin of the Species, which we'll be looking at a little bit today. Um, 
We've got Marx, right, with Das Kapital, and then we've got Freud. We have these alternative ways of understanding how reality works, right? And so there's all these challenges. And if you're in the academy, these are border, you know, baseline presuppositions you gotta hold, right? If if you're a sane, rational person, it was thought you gotta you gotta bow the knee to all of these three uh, fields of thought. Well. Oftentimes, as people in 20th and 21st century, when we look at Genesis, we're thinking like, okay, I got to do battle with these ideas. And that's fair and right and good, right? Darwinian or post-Darwinian evolution does need to be challenged. We do need to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. But I want to submit to you that that's not the initial uh, point of entry when Genesis comes out on the bookshelves, as it were. Obviously not the bookshelves, but you get what I'm saying. Um, so here we go. When the Spirit inspired Moses to pen Genesis, other explanations for origins existed, right? Just as there are today. And that desire in humanity to explain our origins is universal, whether we attribute it to the mythological, the historical, the scientific, or the pseudoscientific realm. From 1848 to 1896, uh, the major creation story, Enuma Elish, was unearthed by archaeologists. The general account likely predates Hammurabi in 1792 BC and was therefore in existence before Moses, likely around 1500 BC. It has some similarities to the book of Genesis, and that, of course, leads your college professor friends to assume that Genesis and its events are likely merely a copycat myth as it shares some themes with accounts that are clearly fairy tale, it said. If you're interested, there was a, a Lutheran theologian, a gentleman by the name of Alexander Heidel, um, in, I don't know, probably 1940s or so. Um, he was an Assyriist, Assyriologist sorry, at the University of Chicago. Uh, he wrote a classic work that was titled The Babylonian Genesis. And He's, as a Lutheran theologian, sort of interesting, University of Chicago, which is historically very well known for having, you know, top rate, uh, at least in philosophy, for example. Uh, here's a conservative Lutheran church, Missouri Synod theologian that, you know, hold, holds an office, holds a chair at uh, University of Chicago. Anyhow, his, uh, his point there is just to examine the similarities and differences between it and Genesis. Now, we're not going to unpack that a whole bunch today, but suffice it to say that uh, just because there's an existence of a document that shares similar themes that might pre predate Genesis does not make it true, okay? It's, you know, the human propensity to have similar stories uh, is a thing, right? Especially when there's a reality behind it. Um, okay, so we're going to look at the Enuma Elish for a bit. Now, the Enuma Elish is the story of a battle against, amongst gods before the creation of the world and humanity as we perceive it, so to speak. The account opens with nothing except the divine parents, Apsu, who represents fresh water, and he's the male character, and Tiamat, female character, who represents salt water. And then their son is this hybrid offspring. His name is Mumu, and uh, he's likely a mist arising between these two types of water. In time, other deities are born into this family, into this pantheon of gods. By the third generation of these gods, these guys love to party, right? They just like noise. They're up all night, making noise, having a great time. And Apsu, the father god of them all, 
and Tiamat too, uh, they're not so excited about all the noise. And they're like, guys, can you just pipe down a bit? Quiet, knock it off, right? Apsu starts getting to the point where he's having problems sleeping. It's starting to intervene with his day job or, you know, it's a problem. And so finally Apsu comes up with the idea. You know, we've tried peaceful means. We're going to have to kill these kids. They're just noisy. We're going to have to knock that off, right? And so Tiamat, being struck by her motherly affection, says, oh, no, we can't do that. And so she lets one of her uh, children know about her father's plan, right? So apparently Tiamat shares this plan with her children and her grandchildren, and they quietly scheme about how to escape their fate. Now, one of the offspring is a god named Ea, or Ea, I don't know. Uh, he's the god of magic, and so he makes a magic circle around the gods to protect him from a counterattack. And then he proceeds to steal his grandfather's crown and his powers with it. Ea then kills his grandfather, Apsu, and he builds a house for himself. And he gets married, and he gives birth to a son, and his son's name is Marduk. Now, in this time, this intervening time with all the battle of the gods and this sort of deicide, we have Tiamat stewing. This is the female mother god, you know, who helped procreate and create all these gods. Um, she's planning. She was not too cool with the idea of her husband bumping off, uh, you know, the kids, but she's certainly not cool with the kids bumping off her husband. So she is waiting, and she's waiting. Finally, she cooks up a plan. She decides, okay, it's time to bring it to these guys. Uh, so Marduk, uh, this offspring of Ea, he's the wisest of the gods, and his father Ea bestowed on him, through magic, a double portion amongst the gods. And so Tiamat finally brings her, her plan to action. She's going to seek revenge. And so the, the Enuma Elish is this sort of Babylonian creation account. It's born out of this epic mythological battle of how the god Marduk engages in a bloody battle with Tiamat, as Tiamat seeking revenge or vengeance for her husband. And so we're going to read, uh, you know, uh, through various sources it's been coddled together, and uh, this is uh, a quote from the text. There's a couple portions missing, but we're going to do the best that we can. So here's a quote from the text, the Enuma Elish. And the Lord, in this case Marduk, stood upon Tiamat's hinder parts after he defeated her in battle. And with his merciless club, he smashed her skull. He cut through the channels of her blood. Then the Lord rested, gazing upon her dead body, while he divided the flesh of the, who knows what, blank. There's a part of the text missing. And he devised a cunning plan. With her, Tiamat, this dead deity, he split her like a flat fish in two halves. One half of her he established as a covering for heaven. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, in the text here, I just want you to, to notice, and this is, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, Genesis is picking up on all this stuff. And this is, a, a re this is not a demythologizing, it's a remythologizing, right? And these Jews just kind of picked up this, uh, existing uh, creation myth and ran with it. I want you just to think about this, though, in, in terms of the story. Uh, think about all of the politics, right? There's this sort of uh, 
disgruntled family dynamic. Uh, there's these plans. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. I actually did kill you, right? And the, and the kids ended up winning. Uh, think about the long periods of time for plans and execution of plans and failures and successes, right? Think about the royal, uh, the multiple gods and all the royal intrigue. Think about the backstabbing. Think about the dependence of, uh, on others, right? Um, this sounds a lot like common mythology, is we make our gods into really cool men, right? Uh, okay, well, as we jump into the Genesis account and, and think about the biblical evidence for the creation account, I want you to notice that God's creation does require work, right? The Catechism says, you know, what is the work of creation? It, it, it is work. Right? And that's an essential and useful pattern as we look at the creation week. Creation is not something that's always been there, right? Matter is not eternal, contrary to your, you know, your friends that are Darwinists of some variety, right? No, creation has a birthday according to the Genesis text, as we're going to see. There's a time when it began, and there's a time when it'll end, right? At least it'll be transformed by any, anyhow. So as we begin to... Uh, think about this, matter's not eternal. There's only one that's always existed, and that's the one God, not many. There's no battles. There's no equal, lesser, or better gods, right? There's no hard work of taking pre-existent materials and molding them into an earth. No. When we look at the Genesis account, we have a very, very different account. And this is the context into which Moses is writing. Okay, certainly this is in the category of what we call theomachy or, you know, battle against the gods, not that other gods exist, but there are so-called lords and so-called gods. And Moses is saying, no, this is the God that exists, the God that's really real. Okay, so here we go. This God merely speaks and things come out of nothing. So I'm just going to read the Genesis count, 1, 1 to 2, 3. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And so God called, and God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters were gathered together, and he called them seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which there is seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which uh, is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let there be signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. 
And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule, rule the night and the stars. And God said, over, set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds above the earth and across, let birds fly above the earth and across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves and with, with which the uh, waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. And uh, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given to you, given you every plant yielding seed that is on the faith of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird in the heavens, and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day, and from his work, uh, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. That's a lot, and we're not going to unpack all of Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 2 or whatever uh, today. But I want you to see the relative cakewalk that this is for God, okay? As we look at this, unlike men's projects, God creates out of nothing, okay? Think about that. If you were going to build something, you would probably take a trip down to Home Depot. You would buy some lumber. You'd buy some screws, maybe some nails, right? You would buy stuff, pre-existent materials, because we're dependent on that if we're going to create we don't create out of nothing. But the God of the Bible, he doesn't need those things. God needs nothing, right? So in terms of raw materials, none needed. God exists unto himself. And if he's going to create, he creates out of himself by the word of his power. Now, how does God create? Well, I just said it, by the word of his power. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen was not made out of what is visible. Or Psalm 33, 9. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. 
The classic Latin terminology for this, of course, is this idea of ex nihilo, that God creates out of nothing, right? He doesn't need pre-existent matter because there isn't, okay? So this relative cakewalk that we see, at least especially in comparison with the Enuma Elish, is stark, right? We're not taking some pre-existent being and using their bones and bodies to create a world out of. No, no, God speaks and it comes to be. And we see that repetitive pattern, and there's evening, and there's morning, and it was so, right? Uh, and it was good. God makes a good and glorious creation. Well, again, I want you to notice, though, that this is work. And when we think about our experience with work, uh, whether you work in construction or working with people or whatever, uh, there's a lot of uh, investment of time, of sweat, right, uh, of worries. Uh, it's, it's a big thing. It takes many months, maybe sometimes years, right? So this leads us to ask the question, well, how long did it take God to create the whole universe and the first creatures? Obviously, the catechism tells us that he did it in the space of six days and all was very good. But I just want to look for a minute in terms of how this has been understood uh, within the church uh, for the most part. And obviously, I'm not going to unpack all of these positions. This is huge. But uh, I'll give you a taste. So, uh, you know, there's been many answers to this question in church history. Uh, from the early church fathers until the Reformation, it could be argued that nobody thought that the creation was done in six literal 24-hour days. A couple examples um, within that time period. You know, Augustine argued that, hey, creation was probably instantaneous, right? And Augustine's certainly right. It's in the wheelhouse of God to instantaneously create a, it's, you know, it, it's, it's possible within the being of the God stated in the Bible, right? So for Augustine, he thinks the days of creation refer to logical priority, not necessarily a temporal priority. It's not like going through a six-speed transmission and you go first through six, right? No, according to Augustine, you know, God just creates it, and logically it's there for us to understand that way, but it was in an instant. Anselm, 1033 to 1109, he confessed that the days of creation were not days, at least as we understand days, okay? So as we begin to look at these views for days of creation, I want you to see there's basically two flavors, right? Um, eh, maybe a bit reductionistic. There's basically ones that permit an old earth interpretation, right, where maybe the earth is thousands, many thousands, millions, billions. That says billions. Okay. Uh, and then there's a, a young earth variety, right? And that is, the, you know, whether we take Archbishop Usher or whatever in probably 6,000 years, but it's, it's thousands, right? It's not that, that old. And so they're basically these positions that we're going to look at fall into one of those possibilities, not necessities, but possibilities, okay? So we're going to look at the six 24-hour day position, right? And that, of course, puts us here. Um, now, it needs to be said right off the bat that modern science, right, claims that such a creation is impossible. Now, 
personally, in many cases, I think modern science denies this whole concept of creation, right? I think we get into providence. I think a lot of sort of Darwinian evolution, these guys are really leaning on the concept of providence, and they don't have a leg to stand on without the idea that there's a, a universe that is predictable and made by a god who has reason and rationality baked into the cake of it. As we cut through it, we find that, right? But they don't have this category of creation, therefore they're bankrupt when it comes to thinking about this. But yeah, modern science claims that such a creation is impossible, especially within six days, right? The argument is, well, think about the way things happen now, right? I mean, the way they happen now are the way things have always happened. That is, if the Earth crust moves at, let's say, a centimeter a year at an earthquake fault, it's always moved at that, right? And as we do our calculations, that's what we need to take into account. And that helps us determine that, well, the Earth is really, really old. Now, they, of course, think that all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation, right? That's sort of the assumption. They reason because we don't see men created as adults and trees growing to bear fruit in one day that this six-day creation is impossible. But let's be really clear. With the God in Genesis 1, there's no good reason to think this way. Our God is outside of time and can do things that don't make any sense according to our limited preconceptions of the world. Consider, for example, Jesus, his first miracle in John 2, right? He turns water into wine, and not just water into wine, but the best wine, okay? He didn't make Welch's. He made something that would bring joy to your heart, right? It was good wine. It was fully mature. So on the third day, of course, we know John 2, 1 through 11. The wedding takes place at Cana in Galilee. His mother's there. And Jesus and his disciples also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, we have no more wine. Jesus says to her, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. So he stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. Uh, he said, Crush some grapes. And he said, Collect that juice. And he said, hold on to that for several months. Taste a little bit here and there to see if it's ready. No. He says, go give it to them, right? We see the divine creative act of Jesus, the creator, in play, right? And so, you know, for those, let's just be clear. For those who want to deny a six-day creation because it can't make sense in terms of the way we expect things to work right here, what is the issue? Well, the issue is this. If that's your reason for why you say a six-day creation is impossible, it's just unbelief, right? You are denying the category of creation. That, that, that's the issue, right? So if, if you're, you know, uh, I've said it lots of time concerning how do we interpret the Bible, right? If, if you're a dispensationalist and you have your Bible and you have the newspaper in one hand, something's wrong, right? If you're looking and you're saying, well, I need to make sure the Bible coincides with science, well, you're, you're probably wrong, right? So we need to be careful with the rationale for why we come to these conclusions, okay? And in many cases, I think if you're, if you're saying, well, that just can't be, well, it might be unbelief, okay? Not necessarily. Uh, okay, Another view, of course, is the day-age view. And I think I printed all these out for you. I did. Okay, day-age view. We're not going to go much into that. Each day in the creation account represents an age that could have a really long period, right? And there's no specified explanation of how long those ages are. But the point is, is maybe, and let's be honest. Hey, guys, the fact is, uh, you know, we, 
can misinterpret Scripture, and we can misinterpret creation as well. And so for people who have frustration here, sometimes the day-age view can, like, permit, like, hey, I'm, I'm convinced by examining the creation data that probably it is old, right? And, right? And there's the, the big question that needs to be asked is what is primary? Is Scripture primary or is your interpretation of uh, natural revelation primary? Well, this might provide opportunities for a, a, a longer period of time. So certainly, you know, the day-age view permits uh, more time. The gap theory, right? Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, right? We got Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Cool. God creates all things. Verse 2, there's a gap posited between these two. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And they sort of interpret, well, that darkness, God's a God of light, right? There's no darkness in him at all, right? That's what 1 John says. How do we have darkness wrapped up? There's a gap there. There's a fall. Satan fell somewhere. Now, this is reading into the text a lot of stuff. Um, but again, with this gap theory, this provides an opportunity for an extended period of time, right? So again, you know, this is more, it could be interpreted to have a, you know, a longer period of time, an older earth, right? All right, um... Next one we'll look at is the literary framework or an analogical view, okay? And a lot of this comes down to when we read the opening chapters of Genesis, how, what's the genre? How do we describe it, right? Is it historical narrative, pure historical narrative? Is there some poetic value to it? And for the framework guys, they're arguing that, you know, yes, God made all things out of nothing by the word of his power, um, but they're saying when we read Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, the point isn't to figure out, like, how long did it happen with time, but rather, what's the big picture of our creating, redeeming, covenant-making, Sabbath-keeping God, right? And to follow that pattern of work, 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 rest. And man made in the image of God who bears God's image and is like God in many ways, he is to work, 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 rest, right? That's the point of the passage, not to be looking at that. Now, I understand that's not satisfying to some. So I just want to throw out, and, and that's a lot, you know, we could probably spend a, a good class on each of these views. Um, I'd have to do a little homework, to be honest. It's been a long time since so I've given much thought to these issues. Um, but what I want to do here is just say that all of these views have been held by saints who genuinely, truly defend the fact that God created the world out of nothing by the power of his word and that we didn't evolve from monkeys or anything like that. And people who genuinely have scripture as their primary source material. People who are saying, okay, what's first? Do I believe scripture or do I believe my eyes, right? Um, and, and so it, that's something that needs to be said. So you can find people who believe in biblical inerrancy, who hold to all these views. They just differ as to what the Bible means by days, six days here. And personally, for me, I'm kind of undecided. Maybe agnostic would be the right word here um, in, in terms of this. And it's not due to lack of study. I spent... Uh, pretty good amount of time in 2003 really wrestling with this issue. The, the presbytery that I was seeking to be licensed in, I, I was, you know, probably quarter way through my licensure exams, and this was a really sticky issue, right? And, and that presbytery, for good reasons, 
I, I don't hold that against those brothers. They had genuine concerns. And the concern was this. If you cannot affirm a six-day literal 24-hour creation, this might be the issue. Your hermeneutic might be faulty. Your approach to interpreting Scripture might lead you to dangerous areas and other aspects, right? And they were really hardcore on that. And I watched, you know, in seminary, I watched better men than I again and again get shot down by the presbytery because they couldn't say, you know, I believe in a literal six-day, 24-hour uh, creation week, right? And uh, my dilemma was, I have no problems with that. It's in the wheelhouse of God. Zero problems there. Is that what the text says? Can I stand before the people of God and say, thus says the Lord, God created the heavens and the earth in the, within six days, 24 hours, in the way in which we perceive of them now in some ways, right? I, I couldn't do that. Um, and so I kind of gave up and ran away. Um, now, uh, personally for me, I have strong affinities towards either the six-day view or a framework or analogical view. I'm fully aware that that might not completely satisfy some of you. Um, it, it wasn't a satisfying answer in 2003 for me, but uh, we'll get into at the bottom of your page here. There's uh, basically uh, you know, some suggestions for presbyteries. In the, yes, sir? Right. The more I read scripture, the more I see that God uses anthropomorphism to help us. He gives us a picture. He doesn't say six twenty-four hours. I'm gonna give you an example that I found long ago. Jesus came down from heaven. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. Well, we'll get into that a little bit with, uh, you know, sort of uh, that, that in that case, uh, in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, they had, you know, there was a study committee and the study committee gave, you know, suggestions for how presbyteries could pursue interviewing their candidates for ministry. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, but in my view, and this was interesting to me, one of, uh, you know, a dear elder friend of mine who was certainly in the, the faction of folks who really wanted you to be a six-day, 24-hour guy, I remember he says, Dan, at the end of the day, this is majoring in the minors. And I thought that was interesting for a guy who was, uh, you know, insisting that people hold that view. But um, I appreciated that. So I stole his language here. I would encourage you with the days of creation, don't major in the minors, Okay. Um, we'll look at the things we should major in a bit. And so I'm going to throw out a good quote here from Machen. Yes, sir. Yeah, 
so that's a common view among six-day guys is that God made a, uh, you know, a, a mature creation, right? Adam is made in, in maturity. He's ready to procreate. And yeah, the earth looks old because it was old when he made it. It was mature. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, I got a few more pages to get through here. Quote from Machen. Uh, just to finish this point, I'll, I'll lean on somebody better than me. Uh, here's what Machen says in his book, uh, The Christian View of Man. The meaning of day in Genesis 1 has been debated in the church at least since the days of Augustine. The literary form of the passage in its relation to other scriptures is important for its interpretation. Responsible Reformed theologians have differed over whether Genesis 1 teaches a young earth or allows for an old earth. Where one of the, while one of these interpretations must be mistaken, we believe that either position can be held by faithful Reformed people. And I think there's much wisdom in Machen's statement there. So regardless of which view we adopt, Genesis 1, 1 through 27 gives man the history of creation. It's historical. You can't deny that. It gives his weekly pattern and creation's goal. This is the most important thing that can be said of the Genesis account. Genesis gives us true historical accounts of creation. Mankind is to copy God's work week. Mankind is to work six days and enter into the rest on the seventh day, just like God did. So we could say that the goal of creation is the Sabbath day. What does Genesis say about days one through six that it doesn't say about day seven? Well, days one through six all end in the statement, and there was evening and there was morning. Notice day seven doesn't have that. There's no evening and morning there. Rather, it says God blessed it and sanctified it because he rested on the seventh day from all the work he had done. If there's no evening and there's no morning, at least in our perception, whether it's anthropologically or really, the way in which we set time, the way in which we understand reality is it's by evening and morning. That's what a day is, right? Well, if it doesn't have an evening and a morning, what kind of a day is it? I would encourage you to think that it's a never-ending day of rest. It is God entering into his heavenly realm, that place where he's calling us, calling Adam and Eve, right? So God invites you to that rest. As you have faith in the gospel message of Christ, you partake in that rest. Hebrews 4, 1 through 10, I think, speaks of that rest. 4, 1 through 10. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them. Speaking back to the wilderness generation. Because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way. I love that passage from Hebrews. It always justifies my poor ability to give you Bible verses. Yeah. Here's the author of Hebrews saying, ah, God says it somewhere, some villains. Yeah. That's nice. Um, For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest... God would 
not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So, big picture. Creation days, creation week. There's a goal going back to Westminster Shorter Catechism number one. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's about eschatology, right? There's a forever world. We're forever beings made to pursue that forever land, right? And so this is what we see when we look at uh, the, the week of creation. God is calling us to his final Sabbath rest, right? Your final rest awaits you in heaven. The goal of God's creation is heaven for his people. You enter into that seventh-day rest after you finish your earthly labors for the Lord's sake. Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds will follow them. And beloved, of course, you know as we gather on the Lord's day, we participate in that heavenly rest in some small measure right? Today is a day that serves as a foretaste of heaven to come. The Bible presents us with two ages, Galatians 1.4, this present evil age, according to Paul, and then the age to come, Hebrews 6.5. In the Old Testament, the Sabbath was on a Saturday because history looks forward to that pattern of mankind works, labors six days, fulfilling, you know, ostensibly the ideal was that man would fulfill the covenant of works and he would enter into heavenly glory, right, with his Lord and King. But of course we see that doesn't happen. That pattern doesn't happen. It happens for one, for Jesus, the second Adam. But now, of course, we see that the, the Sabbath has changed. We celebrate the Sabbath on Sunday. In the New Testament, Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week and he accomplishes heaven for his people. Now we celebrate the Lord's Day on the first day of the week because the age to come has broken into this world and we start our weeks with rest. Today is not the end of the week. This is the first day of the week. This is the day where you come and you hear as you confess your sins and as the minister of the word absolves you of your sins, you hear that I am a heaven-born child that I go in my labors this week not to prove anything to anybody, but rather because I have been bought. I am sanctified. I am secure. I have a place in my Father's many mansions. What can I do to serve you, my Lord? So the pattern has been changed. You now are redeemed people. Heaven is your home. It's a certainty. And you go forward Monday through Saturday. How can you show what that kingdom is like as you labor in whatever your labors are? Now, of course, we know uh, that that age to come has broken into our broken world in a spiritual manner. We look forward to the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting and when heaven and earth become one. Listen for a moment to the Lord tell you where you have come today as you worship. I know I read this passage a lot, but uh, it's one of my favorite. Hebrews 12, 18 through 24 for you have not come to that to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, and to the sound of a trumpet and a voice of whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, it's so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion 
to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks better word than the blood of Abel. Beloved, as we enter into worship today and every Lord's Day, listen to the good things that God has done for you in Jesus. Believe that. Rest in your Lord. He's not only the creator, he's the recreator who will make you fit for heaven at last. Now, as we close, I just want to touch on some non-negotiables as we look at the opening chapters of Genesis. And, you know, this is uh, from, uh, I published for you the uh, 2004 OPC Study Committee uh, View on Creation. And uh, I, you know, I was relieved uh, that, that this came out. Um, and it was just, you know, it's, it's Presbyterianism. It's pious advice and with, 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 with uh, you know, so, some good recommendations. But here's what we got. Looking for ministerial candidates, the goal is, can the candidate affirm the following and can he articulate what he understands by them? Creation ex nihilo, right? There's no room in the Genesis account to say that there's preexistent matter, okay? No. The federal headship of Adam. Is Adam, as the New England Children's Catechism used to say, in Adam we fall all? Is that a reality? Can you affirm that exegetically? Can you explain that? The covenant of works, Right? That there is a task given to Adam. Yes, it's a covenant needs to be affirmed, right? Uh, the doctrine of the Sabbath. The sufficiency and perspicuity of Scripture. That is, is Scripture sufficient for what it tells us? Is it perspicuous? Is it clear, right? Those things need to be affirmed. The historicity of the creation account. And then under that, of course, there's some other questions. And, you know, the goal here is uh, to make it really simple, uh, you know, they're just asking, where is your starting point? Are you starting with general revelation? If so, bad move, right? Uh, you know, Scripture needs to, to be uh, supreme, okay? Now, uh, is it possible to look at gen? Is, is that a useful benchmark in terms of, yeah, possibly, but you should never start there and make that your end, okay? All right. Maybe if there's one question that I don't have an answer for. Yes. Right.
right, right. It might be as, so you've mentioned the, the role of hermeneutics and all of this, and that this is what it comes down to at the end of the day. Uh, I think, and I don't mean to be uh, unkind towards those that are like, you must believe in the six-day, 24-hour view. Um, I, I think I might be there, to be honest. But um, the question is, I think this is their starting point. We are starting from 20th century fundamentalism where we need to go do battle with Darwin, right? And it's fundamentally denying this creation category um, whereas I'm, I'm more likely to start here and go, no, 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 it, it's, it definitely is, you know, God will not deal with anybody else trying to steal his thunder, his glory, right? Um, but I think the, the initial argument is, is in contrast to this, right? It's clarifying that. I, and, you know, that, that's always a, a, a threat and a problem when doing biblical interpretation is we sometimes bring our cultural, theological, philosophical baggage to the text and assume it has to answer our questions in the way we want. Yeah. Did you have a hand up, Jim? Right, right. Next. It's not rotating at the same speed over the millennium. Yeah. It has changed. So even the definition of a day is different. There's a lot of things we don't understand. We need to end. Let's pray. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. All right. Father, we give you thanks uh, that you are who you say you are. Father, we ask that you would give us illumination by your Holy Spirit that we might more and more be conformed to the teaching of Scripture on this point. Give us uh, fiercity when it comes to defending the truth. Uh, I don't know if that's a word. Uh, but also, Father, give us charity as uh, we reason our way to come to positions where we understand what Scripture says. Hear us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.